Chapter 14, Part 2 of The Quest of the Historical Jesus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Quest of the Historical Jesus by Albert Schweitzer, translated by William Montgomery. Chapter 14, Part 2 The Liberal Lives of Jesus. The points of distinction between the Vician and the new interpretation are as follows. Vysa is skeptical as regards the detail. The new Markan hypothesis ventures to base conclusions even upon incidental remarks in the text. According to Vysa, there were not distinct periods of success and failure in the ministry of Jesus. The new Markan hypothesis confidently affirms this distinction and goes so far as to place the sojourn of Jesus in the parts beyond Galilee under the heading Flights and Retirements. The earlier Markan hypothesis expressly denies that outward circumstances influenced the resolve of Jesus to die. According to the latter, it was the opposition of the people and the impossibility of carrying out his mission on other lines which forced him to enter on the path of suffering. Holtzmann says, quote, Thus the course of Jesus' life hastened forward to its tragic close, a close which was foreseen and predicted by Jesus himself with ever-growing clearness as the sole possible close, but also that which alone was worthy of himself, and which was necessary as being foreseen and predetermined in the counsel of God. The hatred of the Pharisees and the indifference of the people left from the first no other prospect open. That hatred could not but be called forth in the fullest measure by the ruthless severity with which Jesus exposed all that it was and implied. A heart in which there was no room for love. A morality inwardly riddled with decay. An outward show of virtue. A hypocritical arrogance. Between two such unyielding opponents, a man who, to all appearance, aimed at using the messianic expectations of the people for his own ends, and a hierarchy as tenacious of its claims and as sensitive to their infringement as any that has ever existed, it was certain that the breach must soon become irreparable. It was easy to foresee, too, that even in Galilee, only a minority of the people would dare to face with him the danger of such a breach. There was only one thing that could have averted the death sentence which had been early determined upon, a series of vigorous, unambiguous demonstrations on the part of the people. In order to provoke such demonstrations, Jesus would have needed, if only for the moment, to take into his service the popular, powerful, inflammatory messianic ideas or rather would have needed to place himself at their service. His refusal to enter by so much as a single step upon this course, from which any ordinary point of view of human policy would have been legitimate, because the only practical one was the sole sufficient and all-explaining cause of his destruction. The Jesus of Vice's view has completed his development at the time of his appearance, the Jesus of the new interpretation of Mark continues to develop in the course of his public ministry. There is complete agreement, however, in the rejection of eschatology. For Holtzmann, Schenkel, and Weissacher, as for Weisse, Jesus desires to found an inward kingdom of repentance. 
It was Israel's duty, according to Schenkel, to believe in the presence of the kingdom which Jesus proclaimed. John the Baptist was unable to believe in it, and it was for this reason that Jesus censured him, for it was in this sense that Schenkel understands the saying about the greatest among those born of women, who is nevertheless the least in the kingdom of heaven. Quote, so near the light, and yet shutting his eyes to its beams, is there not some blame here, an undeniable lack of spiritual and moral receptivity? Close quote. Jesus makes messianic claims only in a spiritual sense. He does not grasp at superhuman glory. It is his purpose to bear the sin of the whole people, and he undergoes baptism, quote, as a humble member of the national community. Close quote. His whole teaching consists, when once he himself has attained to clear consciousness of his vocation, in a constant struggle to root out from the hearts of his disciples their theocratic hopes and to effect a transformation of their traditional messianic ideas. When, on Simon's hailing him as the Messiah, he declares that flesh and blood has not revealed it to him, he means, according to Schenkel, quote, that Simon has at this moment overcome the false messianic ideas and has recognized in him the ethical and spiritual deliverer of Israel. That Jesus predicted a personal bodily second coming in the brightness of his heavenly splendor and surrounded by the heavenly hosts to establish an earthly kingdom is not only not proved, it is absolutely impossible. Close quote. His purpose is to establish a community of which his disciples are to be the foundation, and by means of this community to bring about the coming of the kingdom of God. He can, therefore, only have spoken of his return as an impersonal return in the spirit. The latter exponents of the Markan view were no doubt generally inclined to regard the return as personal and corporeal. For Schenkel, however, it is historically certain that the real meaning of the eschatological discourses is more faithfully preserved in the fourth gospel than in the synoptics. In his anxiety to eliminate any enthusiastic elements from the representation of Jesus, he ends by drawing a bourgeois messiah whom he might have extracted from the old-fashioned rationalistic work of the worthy Reinhard. He feels bound to save the credit of Jesus by showing that the entry into Jerusalem was not intended as a provocation to the government. He explains, quote, It is only by making this supposition that we can avoid casting a slur upon the character of Jesus. It was certainly a constant trait in his character that he never unnecessarily exposed himself to danger, and never, except for the most pressing reasons, did he give any support to the suspicions which were arising against him. He avoided provoking his opponents to drastic measures by any overt act directed against them. Even the cleansing of the temple was not an act of violence, but merely an attempt at reform. Schenkel is able to give these explanations because he knows the most secret thoughts of Jesus and is therefore no longer bound to the text. He knows, for example, that immediately after his baptism, he attained to the knowledge, quote, that the way of the law was no longer the way of salvation for his people, close quote. 
Jesus cannot, therefore, have uttered the saying about the permanence of the law in Mark chapter 5, verse 18. In the controversies about the Sabbath, quote, he proclaims freedom of worship. As time went on, he began to take the heathen world into the scope of his purpose. Quote, the hard saying addressed to the Canaanite woman represents rather the proud and exclusive spirit of Phariseeism than the spirit of Jesus. It was a test of faith, the success of which had a decisive influence upon Jesus' attitude towards the heathen. Henceforth, it is obvious that he is favorably disposed towards them. He travels through Samaria and establishes a community there. In Jerusalem, he openly calls the heathen to him. At certain feasts, which they had arranged for that purpose, some of the leaders of the people set a trap for him and betrayed him into liberal sayings in regard to the Gentiles, which sealed his fate. This was the course of the development of the master, who, according to Schenkel, quote, saw with a clear eye into the future history of the world, close quote, and knew that the fall of Jerusalem must take place in order to close the theocratic era and give the Gentiles free access to the universal community of Christians which he was to found. Quote, this period he described as the period of his coming, as in a sense his second advent upon earth. Close quote. The same general procedure is followed by Weishacker in his gospel history, though his work is of a much higher quality than Schenkel's. His account of the sources is one of the clearest that has ever been written. In the description of the life of Jesus, however, the unhesitating combination of material from the fourth gospel with that of the synoptics rather confuses the picture, and whereas Reynon only offers the results of the completed process, Weizsacker works out his, it might almost be said, under the eyes of the reader, which makes the arbitrary character of the proceeding only the more obvious. But in his attitude towards the sources, Weizsacker is wholly free from the irresponsible caprice in which Schenkel indulges. From time to time, too, he gives a hint of unsolved problems in the background. For example, in treating of the declaration of Jesus to his judges that he would come as the Son of Man upon the clouds of heaven, he remarks how surprising it is that Jesus could so often have used the designation Son of Man on earlier occasions without being accused of claiming the Messiahship. It is true that this is a mere scraping of the keel upon a sandbark, by which the steersman does not allow himself to be turned from the course, for Weizsacker concludes that the name Son of Man, in spite of its use in Daniel, quote, had not become a generally current or really popular designation of the Messiah. But even this faint suspicion of the difficulty is a welcome sign. Much emphasis, in fact, in practice, rather too much emphasis, is laid on the principle that in the great discourses of Jesus the structure is not historical. They are only collections of sayings formed to meet the needs of the Christian community in later times. In this, Weizsacker is sometimes not less arbitrary than Schenkel, who represents the Lord's Prayer as given by Jesus to the disciples only in the last days at Jerusalem. It was an axiom of the school 
that Jesus could not have delivered discourses such as the evangelists record. If Schenkel's picture of Jesus' character attracted much more attention than Weizsacker's work, that is mainly due to the art of lively popular presentation by which it is distinguished. The writer knows well how to keep the reader's interest awake by the use of exciting headlines. Catchwords abound and arrest the ear, for they are the catchwords about which the religious controversies of the time revolved. There is never far to look for the moral of the history, and the Jesus here portrayed can be imagined plunging into the midst of the debates in any ministerial conference. The moralizing, it must be admitted, sometimes becomes the occasion of the feeblest ineptitudes. Jesus sent out his disciples two by two. This is for Schenkel a marvelous exhibition of wisdom. The Lord designed thereby to show that in his opinion, quote, nothing is more inimical to the interests of the kingdom of God than individualism, self-will, self-pleasing. Schenkel entirely fails to recognize the superb irony of the saying that in this life all that a man gives up for the sake of the kingdom of God is repaid a hundredfold in persecutions, in order that in the coming age he may receive eternal life as his reward. He interpreted it as meaning that the sufferer shall be compensated by love. His fellow Christians will endeavor to make it up to him, and will offer him their own possessions so freely that, in consequence of this brotherly love, he will soon have, for the house which he has lost, a hundred houses, for the lost sisters, brothers, and so forth, a hundred sisters, a hundred brothers, a hundred fathers, a hundred mothers, a hundred farms. Schenkel forgets to add that, if this is to be the interpretation of the saying, the persecuted man must also receive through this compensating love a hundred wives. This want of insight into the largeness, the startling originality, the self-contradictoriness, and the terrible irony in the thought of Jesus is not a peculiarity of Schenkel's. It is characteristic of all the liberal lives of Jesus, from Strauss's down to Oscar Holtzmann's. How could it be otherwise? They had to transpose a way of envisaging the world which belonged to a hero and a dreamer to the plane of thought of a rational bourgeois religion. But in Schenkel's representation, with its popular appeal, this banality is particularly obtrusive. In the end, however, what made the success of the book was not its popular characteristics, whether good or bad, but the enmity which it drew down upon the author. The Basla Privat Docent, who, in his work of 1839, had congratulated the Zurichers on having rejected Strauss, now, as professor and director at the seminary at Heidelberg, came very near of being adjudged worthy of the martyr's crown himself. He had been at Heidelberg since 1851, after holding a short time De Vetta's chair at Basla. At his first coming, a mildly reactionary theology might have claimed him as its own. He gave it a right to do so by the way in which he worked against the philosopher Kuno Fischer in the higher consistory but in the struggles over the constitution of the church he changed his position. As a defender of the rights of the laity, he ranged himself on the more liberal side. After his great victory in the General Synod of 1861, 
in which the new constitution of the church was established, he called a German Protestant assembly at Frankfurt, in order to set on foot a general movement for church reform. This assembly met in 1863, and led to the formation of the Protestant Association. When the character build Yesu appeared, friend and foe were alike surprised at the thoroughness with which Schenkel advocated the more liberal views. Complained Luthart in a lecture at Leipzig, quote, Schenkel's book has aroused a painful interest. We had learned to know him in many aspects. We were not prepared for such an apostasy from his own past. How long is it since he brought about the dismissal of Kuno Fischer from Heidelberg, because he saw in the pantheism of this philosopher a danger to church and state? It is still fresh in our memory that it was he who, in the year 1852, drew up the report of the theological faculty of Heidelberg upon the ecclesiastical controversy raised by Pastor Dulon at Bremen in which he denied Dulon's Christianity on the ground that he had assailed the doctrines of original sin, of justification by faith, of a living and personal God, of the eternal divine sonship of Christ, of the kingdom of God, and of the credibility of the Holy Scriptures. And now this same Schenkel was misusing the life of Jesus as a weapon in party polemics. The agitation against him was engineered from Berlin, where his successful attack upon the illiberal constitution of the church had not been forgiven. One hundred and seventeen Baden clerics signed a protest declaring the author unfitted to hold office as a theological teacher in the Baden church. Throughout the whole of Germany, the pastors agitated against him. It was especially demanded that he should be immediately removed from his post as director at the seminary. A counter-protest was issued by the Durlock Conference in the July of 1864, in which Bluntschi and Holtzmann vigorously defended him. The ecclesiastical council supported him, and the storm gradually died away, especially when Schenkel, in two defenses, skillfully softened down the impression made by his work and endeavored to quiet the public mind by pointing out that he had only attempted to set forth one side of the truth. The position of the prospective martyr was not rendered any more easy by Strauss. In an appendix to his criticism of Schleiermacher's Life of Jesus, he settled accounts with his old antagonist. He recognized no scientific value whatever in the work. None of the ideas developed in it are new. One might fairly say, he thinks, quote, that the conclusions which have given offence had been carried down the Neckar from Tübingen to Heidelberg, and had there been salvaged by Herr Schenkel, in a somewhat sodden and deteriorated condition, it must be admitted, and incorporated into the edifice which he was constructing. Close quote. Further, Strauss censures the book for its want of frankness, its half-and-half -half character, which manifests itself especially in the way in which the author clings to orthodox phraseology. Quote, over and over again, he gives criticism with one hand all that it can possibly ask, and then takes back with the other whatever the interests of faith seem to demand, with the constant result that what is taken back is far too much for criticism and not nearly enough for our faith. Close quote. He concludes, quote, In the future, 
it will be said of the seven hundred durlockers that they fought like paladins to prevent the enemy from capturing a standard which was really nothing but a patched disclout shankel died in eighteen eighty five after severe sufferings as a critic he lacked independence and was therefore always inclined to compromises in controversy he was vehement though he did nothing remarkable in theology german protestantism owes him a vast debt for acting as its tribune in the sixties that was the last time that any popular excitement was aroused in connection with the critical study of the life of jesus and it was a mere storm in a teacup moreover it was the man and not his work that aroused the excitement henceforth public opinion was almost entirely indifferent to anything which appeared in this department the great fundamental question whether historical criticism was to be applied to the life of jesus had been decided in connection with strauss's first work on the subject if here and there indignation aroused by a life of jesus brought inconveniences to the author and profit to the publisher that was connected in every case with purely external and incidental circumstances public opinion was not disquieted for a moment by volkar and freda although they are much more extreme than schenkel most of the lives of jesus which followed had it is true nothing very exciting about them they were mere variants of the type established during the sixties variants of which the minute differences were only discernible by theologians and which were otherwise exactly alike in arrangement and result as a contribution to criticism keim's history of jesus of nazareth was the most important life of jesus which appeared in a long period it is not of much consequence that he believes in the priority of matthew since his presentment of the history follows the general lines of the markan plan which is preserved also in matthew he gives it as his opinion that the life of jesus is to be reconstructed from the synoptics whether matthew has the first place or mark he sketches the development of jesus in bold lines as early as his inaugural address at zurich delivered on the seventeenth of december eighteen sixty which short as it was made a powerful impression upon holtzmann as well as upon others he had set up the thesis that the synoptics quote, artlessly almost against their will show us unconsciously in incidental unobtrusive traits the progressive development of jesus as youth and man Close quote. his later works are the development of this sketch his grandiose style gave the keynote for the artistic treatment of the portrait of jesus in the sixties his phrases and expressions became classical every one follows him in speaking of the galilean springtide in the ministry of jesus on the johannine question he takes up a clearly defined position denying the possibility of using the fourth gospel side by side with the synoptics in an historical source he goes very far in finding special significance in the details of the synoptists especially when he is anxious to discover traces of want of success in the second period of jesus's ministry since the plan of his life of jesus depends on the sharp antithesis between the periods of success and failure the whole of the second half of the galilean period 
consists for him in flights and retirements Quote, beset by constantly renewed alarms and hindrances jesus left the scene of his earlier work left his dwelling-place at capernaum and accompanied only by a few faithful followers in the end only by the twelve sought in all directions for places of refuge for longer or shorter periods in order to avoid and elude his enemies Kime frankly admits indeed that there is not a syllable in the gospels to suggest that these journeys are the journeys of a fugitive but instead of allowing that to shake his convictions he abuses the narrators and suggests that they desire to conceal the truth he says quote, these flights were no doubt inconvenient to the evangelists matthew is here the frankest but in order to restore the impression of jesus's greatness he transfers to this period the greatest miracles the later evangelists are almost completely silent about these retirements and leave us to suppose that jesus made his journeys to caesarea philippi and the neighborhood of tyre and sidon in the middle of winter from mere pleasure of travel or for the extension of the gospel and that he made his last journey to jerusalem without any external necessity entirely in consequence of his free decision even though the expectation of death which they ascribe to him goes far to counteract the impression of complete freedom why do they thus correct the history quote, the motive was the same difficulty which draws from us also the question is it possible that jesus should flee kime answers yes here the liberal psychology comes clearly to light he explains quote, jesus fled because he desired to preserve himself for god and man to secure the continuance of his ministry to israel to defeat as long as possible the dark designs of his enemies to carry his cause to jerusalem and there while acting as it was his duty to do with prudence and foresight in his relations with men to recognize clearly by the divine silence or the divine action what the divine purpose really was which could not be recognized in a moment he acts like a man who knows the duty both of examination and action who knows his own worth and what is due to him and his obligations towards god and man in regard to the question of eschatology however kime does justice to the texts the ultimate reason why kime deliberately gives much prominence to the eschatology is that he holds to matthew and is therefore more under the direct impression of the masses of discourse in this gospel charged as they were with eschatological ideas than those writers who find their primary authority in mark where these discourses are lacking he admits that eschatology quote, a kingdom of god clothed with material splendors forms an integral part of the preaching of jesus from the first that he never rejected it and therefore never by a so-called advance transformed the sensuous messianic idea into a purely spiritual one jesus does not uproot from the minds of the sons of zebedee their belief in the thrones on his right hand and on his left he does not hesitate to make his entry into jerusalem in the character of the messiah 
he acknowledges his messiahship before the council without making any careful reservations. Upon the cross, his title is the King of the Jews. He consoles himself and his followers with the thought of his return as an earthly ruler, and leaves with his disciples, without making any attempt to check it, the belief which long survived in a future establishment or restoration of the kingdom in an Israel delivered from bondage. Keim remarks with much justice quote, that Strauss had been wrong in rejecting his own earlier and more correct formula, close quote, which combined the eschatological and spiritual elements as operating side by side in the plan of Jesus. Keim, however, himself in the end, allows the spiritual elements practically to cancel the eschatological. He admits, it is true, that the expression son of man which jesus uses designated the messiah in the sense of daniel's prophecy but he does think that these pictorial representations in daniel did not repel jesus because he interpreted them spiritually and quote, intended to describe himself as belonging to mankind even in his messianic office Close quote. to solve the difficulty keim assumes a development Jesus's consciousness of his vocation had been strengthened both by success and by disappointment. As time went on, he preached the kingdom not as a future kingdom, as at first, but as one which was present in him and with him, and he declares his messiahship more and more openly before the world. He thinks of the kingdom as undergoing development, but not with an unlimited, infinite horizon, as the modern suppose, the horizon is bounded by the eschatology. Quote, For however easy it may be to read modern ideas into the parables of the draught of fishes, the mustard seed, and the leaven, which, taken by themselves, seem to suggest the duration contemplated by the modern view, it is nevertheless indubitable that Jesus, like Paul, by no means looks forward to so protracted an earthly development. On the contrary, Nothing appears more clearly from the sources than that he thought of its term as rapidly approaching, and of his victory as nigh at hand, and looked to the last decisive events, even to the day of judgment, as about to occur during the lifetime of the existing generation, including himself and his apostles. It was the overmastering pressure of circumstances which held him prisoner within the limitations of this obsolete belief. When his confidence in the development kingdom came into collision with barriers which he could not pass, when his belief in the presence of the kingdom of God grew dim, the purely eschatological ideas won the upper hand. Quote, and if we may suppose that it was precisely this thought of the imminent decisive action of God taking possession of his mind with renewed force, at this point which steeled his human courage, and roused him to a passion of self-sacrifice, with the hope of saving from the judgment whatever might still be saved, we may welcome his adoption of these narrower ideas as in accordance with the good will of God, which could only, by this means, maintain the failing strength of its human instrument, and secure the spoils of the divine warfare, the souls of men subdued and conquered by him. End of chapter 14, part 2